Um, welcome to today's guest, one of my old friends, Omar Babalal. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And can I just say um, that last name is extremely hard to pronounce and you killed it. So oh, yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, shit. I did not. I did not think you were going to say that. So today we are discussing our chapter two pedagogy of the oppressed for our book club. So what did you think? Yeah, I think uh, it's really interesting because this is my second time reading this book and or second time reading this chapter specifically and different things. It, it's so different than I remember it. And that's probably more a function of where I'm at in my life. And it also broadly speaks to his points that he's mentioning in the book, because the first time I read it was in the context of a classroom. And you're looking for the things, the narrative the teacher wants you to pull out of it as a student. Whereas when you read it of your own literature, of, uh, of your own leisure, rather, um, or of your own volition, the things you pull out will be markedly different depending on what context or frame you bring to the book. So I thought that was interesting. Obviously, like the big thing in this chapter is the banking model of education, where the teacher is a subject of the narrative and the student is an object. He talks a lot about Hegelian dialectic, which is really interesting for me because I'm doing a thesis in Hegel right now. Um, lots of threads that I was really interested in, um, the nature of consciousness, Hegel, uh, the banking model of education. I think those are three big ones. I also, there was a quote that really stuck out because it seems very relevant right now. Basically, like populism is a function of this banking model, and that's why populists will be so drawn to a charismatic leader who makes them feel like they can participate in the narrative. And I think that maps on to like the global body politic right now, especially well. So those were just like four things that really stuck out. Cool. Um, in terms of the banking model of education, he also proposes dialectical pair to that model, which he proposes as a solution to the limitations of the banking education model. And that is the problem posing model through which a new term emerges where the student teacher and the teacher student, uh, both teacher and student take on both roles. And they are co-creators, not only of education, but of reality. Students are encouraged and inspired and also tasked with critiquing and questioning reality and creating it for themselves, which I thought was really interesting. And something that I wanted to know was, do you think we can achieve a problem-posing educational model through formal education, or does that only come through informal means? Because when I was reading it, I was just like, man, formal education sounds like slavery to which we subject our children to. Over the summer, I was meeting a lot of Western hippies and their children were not in school and they don't want to send their kids to school and the kids don't want to go to school. And I recently went on a date with someone who's like, yeah, if I had kids, I wouldn't make them go to school. Like, If they wanted to, that's cool, but I would encourage them if they're into woodworking, that's what we would do. This book is interesting for me. You said it was interesting for you because of your thesis in Hegel and also your double degree in philosophy. For me, it's interesting because I, my degree was educational psychology and my field right now is social and emotional learning within that. So I am going into a formal education field, but I'm also very much entertaining the benefit and possibility of informal education structures. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, I think there's a real catch-22 with trying to reform something or change something, in that it requires participation in the thing that you're trying to change a lot of the time when it's a system. And I think that there's a precarity to that. And I think you it's a process of learning to hold multiple truths. And I think that's part of what first speaking to in like the teacher student model or the converse of that. 
as it pertains to formal education, it's like you're taught a narrative and you're taught to hold one truth. But I think we live in a reality that has a multiplicity of truth. And I think you have to learn that truth isn't mutually exclusive. It's like a perspective. And the more perspectives you can approach reality with, the more critically you can engage with everything around you. So I think I would argue not in favor of one or the other, but I want to teach my children, if I have them, to to buy away from reductive binaries and Mm. the idea of mutual exclusivity. Mm. So I don't think formal and informal should even be juxtaposed like that. I think it should be as much like of a journey as possible Mm. without a a definitive Mm. endpoint, rather like a, a sense of this is your education and you get to be in charge of it to some extent, but you have to participate in you know, the reality around you to some extent. And as you get older, you will get to choose that weight and balance more so. Totally. But just letting them know from onset, this is a mode that socializes you into something. And you Mm -hmm. can choose that if you want, but I'm also not going to take that option away from them in the sense that maybe they don't want to be deprived of of what um, society says reality is, Mm -hmm. deprived of that narrative, and they want to be able to exist in that. So I guess I'm going to teach them to buy away from mutual exclusivity and reductive binaries. Mm. That was really awesome what you said. I do think children are stripped away of a lot of rights and also excluded from society and participating in society only as this very specific thing, which is a child who doesn't know and needs to learn. And then once they are of a certain age, then they can come into the world and society full and whole. And I really like what you said. I think your approach holds, and that's what this podcast is about, and it's about multiple truths, and it really holds the totality of everything gives them perspective, which gives them choice and autonomy. So I think that's really powerful in what you were saying. Something else that I wanted to add as a critique to this chapter, I actually think there's another actor involved which oppresses teachers, the administration, and the government. Oftentimes you'll see there's tension in what teachers want to do or the way they want to teach their courses and the demands of the curriculum of administration and the government. In the United States with standardized testing, they have much more standardized testing than in Canada. And this is beyond just SATs and ACTs. They literally will have hundreds of standardized tests a year and that's how they fund schools so how well schools are doing they'll give more money to that that's how they pay teachers more or fire certain teachers there's a lot of pressure from there so i think the system in and of itself is oppressive and it's not just the teacher students who are the only actors the administration and the government which is super disconnected from the education model is making decisions and also narrating what's happening in the classroom, but being super removed from it. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, really cool threads there that I want to pull Yeah, on. yeah, please. First is a bottom-up model of systems design as it pertains to rethinking or reimagining how these systems could be existent in society. I think we have a top-down structure where, again, you said it's prescriptive as opposed to descriptive, and, and that results in these acrimonious relationships or this kind of internalized idea that the teacher has to be the spokesperson for the logic of the state. But I'd also say, on a different note, that if you follow that thread or pull that thread even further mm-hmm. as it pertains to the government, does government have power? You know what I mean? Where does power actually lie and where is it situated? Because a lot of the times, government aren't necessarily making decisions. It feels like out of, like you can go into government with good intentions, but not per se be able to actualize on those good intentions as a function of a neoliberal market system. So that it doesn't feel like, gov- government feels like another dehumanized agent in the context of you know teacher-student uh. government. It doesn't feel like they have the autonomy that you know we think they do. Rather, they're oftentimes made a scapegoat 
And I think that's really interesting because government only works insofar as people believe government works. And when people are disenfranchised and don't believe government works, it kind of goes back to that quote about populism, right? Charismatic leaders who say, I'm going to get the government to work again, make XXX great again. By XXX, I meant fill in the blank. You you immediately get this uh, visceral response of like, yes, this system doesn't work. It's not working for us. But there's someone with a plan to make it work for us. And that's why I think the entire system is working in a secular way. Like it's not removed from each other. And it kind of reminds me of like Michel Foucault's criticism of power as this more nebulous construct and looking at like the logics of what's driving things right now in society. And I think a lot about science and being data driven and empirical and positivistic traditions of thinking about the world around you, because that's what necessitates standardized testing. It's being able to quantify everything. But the issue there becomes when you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, so many people go their their whole lives thinking they're stupid as a function of the way they've been tested, the way they've been tried to be socialized into something that's just you know, one truth in this more perspectival array, this beautiful mosaic diaspora of many ways of thinking about the world. It's not meant for everyone and it can't be and it shouldn't be. And when you try and impose positivistic ways of turning everyone and commodifying everyone into a data point, yeah, the system won't work because it's not meant to work like that. I really like the point you make about people using government, air quotes, as a scapegoat. I know this is very, very different and very removed from municipal and provincial and federal governments, but as two people who were and you still are in student government, you understand (laughs) a little bit. I know this sounds so whack, but I just remember in high school, I was just on grad council and people would get so angry with me for just tiny decisions I would make and just like, this is unacceptable. People were nasty to me being called names and blamed for stuff it feels really weird the weird thing is it's it is just a person but it's also not just a person right it's an institution i mean in the context of policing right it's it's a monopoly on state-owned violence it's all these nebulous component parts that ultimately have to do with power but is not the central locus of power itself i think student government's mode of socializing students into an us versus them with you know the government this doesn't work for us this doesn't serve us this doesn't operate for us or a mode of socializing them into a way of finding a way to make it work for them whether that be yelling or whether that be being acrimonious with government because the reality is there's so much to do as a student government as a student leadership that you're not going to get everything done and that's really sad but you have to choose which stakeholders you're going to serve versus which ones you're not. I don't know if you've ever heard of Gramsci, but he talks a lot about a liberal government and how ultimately it's just a performance that ultimately underscores a, you know, more authoritarian thing. And I think, you know, you can see that with the COVID-19 pandemic. There's room for discourse until there isn't because a decision has to be made. And I think when decisions have to be made to make progress, which is what government ultimately has to do, someone ends up feeling disenfranchised because their voice wasn't heard, right? But there's simultaneously, if you just sit around listening to people all day, nothing gets done. And that's the competing interests of government. So this is kind of not at all related to prayer, but I think in a way this goes to the exact point that as long as someone's dehumanized, as long as someone's oppressed, everyone is. Because you can go into government with all the good intentions in the world and manifest nothing out of it by choosing to sit around and listen to people all day or by choosing to just impose your own idea of what's right all day. Even just looking at the convoy, politicians getting death threats or at any time someone isn't happy, death threats, boom. That's super dehumanizing and people don't view the government as people. Does the government view people as people either? I want to echo your sentiment of totality and holding multiple truths. I think there is also something to be said about 
representatives situating themselves in this broader nexus of power that is government and sometimes having to make decisions that they don't like or be part of conversations that they don't like that that's what it means to represent but sometimes that does take an emotional toll in and of itself and it's also dehumanizing and when you're a representative it's a really extensive practice and consistently and constantly humanizing yourself and remembering that you are so human yeah it feels precarious but it is the act of holding multiple truths i remember someone told me you have your trusty voice and then you have your voice with us and i think i thought of and reflected a lot about that because it was an act of holding multiple truths and i think at the time i didn't like it because i think we're taught that we have to be integrated in whole but maybe holding space for more than one identity is an important and component of what it means to exist as a person and a way of refuting that idea of narrative. But Deleuze and his idea of deterritorialization, part of what it means to effectively exist is not to, in, in refutation to some of the systems we're talking about, a narrative banking model mode of education is to kind of deconstruct your identity in a way that allows for the holding of multiple trees. So almost having multiple identities in different contexts. And I think that's an appropriate thing to do. And I think I struggled a lot with the idea of my identity is comprised of multiple parts, which calls for multiple identities, depending on what situation I'm in and kind of accepting that and affirming that has been like a whole process yes i have so much to say about this because this is currently where i'm at in my journey so the idea of spaciousness in finding our identity is not really talked about when we talk about finding or having an identity it's this one thing that we have to hold on to and sort of be in all situations but what i'm learning is that it's okay if your decisions or your behaviors change depending on the context. In fact, that's what humans do. Humans are supposed to be flexible. It keeps us safe, it protects us, and it helps us to survive. That's a strength that I'm able to hold space for multiple identities and use it to my advantage in order to get the most out of situations and to protect myself and to also experience the least amount of suffering and harm. This is also what this podcast is about. In order to be able to hold multiple truths, there first has to be space for that. So there has to be an understanding and also a letting go. In terms of spaciousness, there's this aspect of surrender and letting go of control and letting what comes into the space be and acceptance as well. Yeah, I'm thinking about one word as we speak through all this, and mm. it's ego. Mm. Yeah, I think getting too invested in, in one ego is, is narcissism. And I think part of what it means to let go is to realize that ego is more malleable than maybe we think it should be. And I wonder if that's a narrative that we've been taught as well. Like, find yourself, be yourself, think about the way these messagings are being pushed on us. As it pertains to something like consumption, it's kind of predicated on the idea that you have a stable ego in the sense that you have to identify with the in-group. If you like the Toronto Raptors, you better own a lottery jersey to show that you like the Toronto Raptors. Whereas if you like the Toronto Raptors, but it isn't your identity, your ego isn't predicated on owning a lottery jersey, you can like the Toronto Raptors without having to watch every game, without being socialized into the nationalistic idea that sport is, without consuming Toronto Raptors merchandise, etc, etc, etc. There's a lot of food for thought there in and of itself, I'd say. But I think a lot of the systems we exist in rely and are predicated on ego stability. Whereas when you have a deterritorialized ego, it becomes a lot harder to map that or track that because you're not one data point a data set you're this myriad of things you're this mosaic in and of yourself which is what totality is supposed to be hell yeah baby this is like the promo episode (laughs) in terms of creating spaciousness for our identity we also have to be willing and able to do that for other people so just as we accept that we're not this one thing and we're subject to change 
when our homie comes to us and they're totally different after an experience, there's kind of a feeling of like, who are you? And maybe even a little bit of betrayal. Like, I thought you Mm. were this and now you're this. Mm. And I think that could be hard for a lot of people. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's the basis of what we call outgrowing people. I wonder if we'd still outgrow people if there was just this inherent spaciousness that we gave to ourselves and to others. But then I'm thinking, yes, you can still grow other people. You can hold space for them, but you have to have enough similarities to really stick with someone long term. It's interesting because I think the space you hold has to change for the people as they change. You know what I mean? Because they might grow in a way that makes it hard for you to rock with them for whatever reason. And that's fine, I think. And you have to affirm that. And I think consciousness is, is totality. I think it's infinite. It is infinity. And it is this thing that is connected to a broader nexus of metaphysical existence, ontology. And the ego is like the lens through which your consciousness views itself. So I think of like ego like a lens that's meant to be changing depending on the situation and space. One thing I'm really interested in is talking about reality and that being co-constitutive and the project of a relationship between the, the teacher and student. In seeing reality as co-constitutive, it makes me really excited because I think we get trapped in this idea of what change is and social change is. And in holding space for others, you can create new reality. That's a cool thing to think about in and of itself. We talk about the multiplicity of truth, and I think we've talked about it a lot, but can we create new truth, new ways of seeing the world? What is knowledge production? This is like exciting things to me. And who gets to say what knowledge is versus what it isn't? I think when we take down those boundaries that are erected and constructed to go back to what you're saying earlier, like put you in a box, when your homie grows and you thought this person was this and you realize, oh no, they're this now. You realize, yeah, what what does that mean? It, it's you gatekeeping someone's identity. But when someone grows and changes or when new knowledge emerges that you have been exposed to for the first time, you're forced to confront these boundaries that you've constructed. And it speaks to like what a boundary is and why we cling to boundaries so incessantly. Yeah, in regard that's what you were saying about knowing. Knowing has to do also with not knowing. And that's especially important when we're co-creating reality and holding space for new truths to emerge. We have to accept and understand that it's okay not to know. And that's the only way really to move forward because the whole point of creating reality is that we do and we don't have control over it. That it's going to emerge and that it's going to surprise us. And there is an aspect, again, of surrendering and letting go and not knowing, which we have to accept. I wonder how much philosophy of education goes into the creation of an education system. Do you know what I mean? Because there are philosophers of education, there are education specialists. I wonder how much design thinking goes into education and and whether or not it works exactly as intended. I think a lot about being in a relationship and this incessant need to feel like you know your partner completely and that your partner knows you completely. And I've never really given it much thought, but I guess this is my first time confronting the idea of knowledge of your partner in that way. I think it's kind of predicated on sometimes you won't be able to share space, sometimes you won't be able to share time, and how well can you retain that feeling of knowing your partner and being in connection with them. And I wonder, again, it kind of goes back to that ego conversation you had. How, how do you adjust your ego so you can still hold space for that person? Because they should be growing every day. They should be learning every day. They shouldn't be the same person after they come back having had time or space away from you. And I think a lot of people get trapped in that needing to know their partner holistically, which I think is, again, good intention, but necessarily has bad impact. I also want to flip that to its reverse with people wanting to be known holistically. I have this incessant urge to sort of be known in an intimate partnership every single aspect of me but when I break that down and see what that really means 
I don't even, I can't even know myself in its entirety. And then to communicate that to someone or to have someone spend every waking minute, like they still won't even know me. Like, And sometimes what I'll do is I'll be like, okay, I'm just going to tell you about myself. Okay, so when I was a kid and then this happened, okay, and then this and this day, like, I don't know if I'm trying to speed up intimacy or if it's to satiate my desire to be known fully and to be accepted fully. I can definitely think back to times where I've done that too and it does speak to this desire to be recognized or known. And Hegel would have a lot to say about this. I also think about what Fur said in this chapter about you being a part of reality and that being a co-constitutive thing. So maybe when you're with a partner, the pressure isn't to communicate to them who you are, but rather to let yourself become who you're becoming. Totally. Totally. I like that. <laughs> I think a lot about this. I'm in a seminar on de decolonization and abolition. And I think a lot about participation in systems Yeah. because I'm someone who actually gravitates towards that. But some of the things I think I do have deep rooted convictions of hey, these systems don't necessarily work for everybody. And how can we make it a little better? And it's, it's precarious to exist in those systems while you're simultaneously trying to serve a community who maybe can't participate in those systems and represent those voices. Because oftentimes these systems are so engendered in people's ontologies that to exist in them means that you've implicitly accepted them. And some people see that as complicity in and of itself, which makes it hard to hold multiple truths because both sides kind of see you as this outsider in the sense of like more radical communities will see you as oh you're, you're betraying the cause or more liberal communities might say like oh that's kind of way too radical for us but i think you need to be able to hold space for an identity like that to exist in leadership because there's this whole community of people that don't get represented because they don't feel enfranchised enough to participate Kojia's reading of Hegel is like, you negate something, but in negating something, you also create something. Creating is both a constructive and a deconstructive process. And I see that as kind of how I approach existing in these spaces. It's both participation in the creation of a new system and the deconstruction of the old system, not with acrimony, but with love. And that's kind of my, I think, lived conviction and position right now at this moment, where I both know and don't know. I know that I'm in this thing. I know that I both identify with it and disidentify with it. And I know that there's other, this is other more nebulous thing that I both identify with and disidentify with. So I don't want to say like, I'll never be this or do that in the future because I am still becoming, but it does scare me that it's really hard to hold multiple truths in a space like this. It's really hard because so much of the logic is predicated on the type of ontology that's supposed to exist or presupposed to exist in a space. I wanted to kind of just double back there and say that deconstructing and constructing carry connotations of like good and bad, but I don't think that's necessarily how we should think of them. Deconstructing something isn't necessarily a bad thing whatsoever. It doesn't have to be ruled by hate or evil or fear or anything. It can just be a, you know, this isn't working and let's try something new. And I think that that's, a, that's an okay thing to do. It doesn't mean the thing that replaces it has to be perfect. It doesn't mean one thing has to replace the same thing. It can be a more nebulous, like, array of things that replace this one thing. And I think that thinking about the world like that takes off some pressure because when you're negating something or deconstructing something, it's not. it doesn't have to be a, a bad thing that you're even deconstructing. It's just maybe not functional, maybe not utile, maybe not working anymore, you know? And I think there are tons of examples of things that don't work anymore. And this is a dumb example, but when you fix a toilet, right? Because a part is not working. So you take out the old part and put the new part in. That's kind of deconstructing the part of the toilet that doesn't work and you're replacing it with the part that does. Like, I think that's a good metaphor for how I think about things. It's just in a broader array of things, what works and what doesn't and what needs changing versus what doesn't. And in changing that thing, recognize that there's a deconstructive element and a constructive element. I think a lot, and I see this a lot with law, 
and government, people are afraid to deconstruct. So they'll only construct on top of previous constructions. Like, mm-hmm. so when you think about precedent based law or how much mm-hmm. we rely on antecedent thought in politics and law and legal theory, it creates immense problems in the sense that it's really hard to change course. You're kind of building an epistemic ladder where people have to keep going to this terminal point, building on top of previous things. But that becomes really precarious and difficult in the sense that in the beginning of when this legal thought came to emerge, a lot of folks' voice were not included. Uh, so in, in, in a way, the progenitors of these systems are still alive in their in their law, in their thought. Um, and it becomes really hard to refute without simultaneously trying to deconstruct elements where they might have been kind of wrong or problematic. Totally. I do think looking at things like that does take pressure off. And I guess the reason why I felt so pressured is because I was thinking of it in a con- constructive way where I was like, I have to add these programs onto the additional shitty school system. I'm like, fuck, that means teachers are going to have less time they're going to be more stressed out. They're going to hate the administration. Students are going to be confused. Fuck. Rather than being like, okay, so I want to add this thing into the curriculum. That means I have to deconstruct old ways of knowing, of understanding, of seeing, because there is a constraint, which is time. Time is a constraint within our education system, which is great. I think there should be one constraint. That's how creativity comes to be because creativity is about problem solving and problem solving. There has to be at least one constraint. So now I feel a lot less pressure because I'm like, okay, I would have to deconstruct something in order to construct a new sort of programming for education. It's going to be hard to deconstruct and reconstruct something, but I do think it's going to be easier than trying to make it work in a system that's not working. And I do think that's what we're sort of doing right now is adding these programs rather than like letting go of what's not serving us and then replacing Mm. it with things that actually work. Yeah. And I think a lot about the context of, okay, if everyone chose one little part of the system, I think people see this big, big system and they get scared by it because there's so much that needs to be changed. Yeah. But if everyone chose one little part, how many little parts would have to change for it to be a whole new system that, you know, work more functionally? I've I have a lot of thoughts on time as well, but I'm not sure we should go into that. I don't I don't know if I see time as a constraint anymore. I think time being a constraint is a function of boundaries. And boundaries are important, but boundaries also sometimes serve us and sometimes don't. And I think in my life, seeing time as a constraint has really been a problem rather than something additive or a solution in my life. So I'm kind of thinking about my relationship to time a lot and trying to think about how I can exist in time more meaningfully, more purposely, less being ruled and governed by fear of the scarcity of time and more like empowered in the sense that I'll find time for what I need to find time for. I also think in, in the context of thinking about things that aren't working in Ontario, the civics curriculum uh, really isn't working. And there's a lot of information that students need, like about financial literacy, about how to exist as a citizen. Uh, but you, you end up with these things like that just have nothing to do with anything in the civics curriculum that aren't really that helpful. But there are so many things that would be so much more meaningful to exist in the civics curriculum. Like think about when are you supposed to learn about school board politics, right? And is that important? I don't know, but it's your chance as a student to be heard, right? If you think about school as a system, who should be most accountable to who? Students should kind of run things a little bit more. You know, they should have a lot more of a voice and they should have a lot more of a say. And when you think about the fact that students don't ostensibly have that voice because they don't know about this broader system that they exist in, I think it becomes kind of scary because you think you, you exist in school, but you don't think about who makes the decisions about why and where you exist and the spaces and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think something like that would be meaningful as well. Financial literacy, as I mentioned before, how to be a good citizen, what that means. There's tons of things we don't learn in school that we probably should. Yeah, in terms of school board information, and you asked, is that something students should have access to? And I think it's something that some students feel called to have access to, and those students should have access. And then it also brings you back to how you were saying that 
there's a space for everyone. The system isn't this one big thing that makes it scary to approach. There's really a calling and like a, a subspace for everyone to fit into. And so when you're saying should students, everyone, some people don't want to and some people don't care. And maybe that's wrong. And maybe that has to do with understanding your role as a citizen and your role as a student. But some people just don't care. But I think that could be okay because they have different causes. With saying that, I understand that everything is related. So while they might not feel called to know about school board politics in the way that you may, let's say they want to contribute to sports at their school, mm. they're going to need the knowledge in order to do that. Just just like you, who really wants access to school board politics knowledge, is going to need access to the information about sports. I don't like politics. <laughs> I want to be I want to be upfront about that. I think they're I think, <laughs> I think they're like a tool. I think there there's it should be a tool and it's not because people don't see it as that. And I think that's what gets me a little bit that that really grinds my gears. <laughs> but to be honest, it, it should be a mode by which anyone can push their own agenda. And it's not that right now. And the fact that it's not that makes me kind of upset because it makes me think, what is it? It's a mode of disenfranchising people. I think if politics worked ideally, every, everyone would have something to say. Does that make sense? Because no one would be disenfranchised enough to feel like I can't exist in this space. And it's not that right now, partially because it's made intentionally inaccessible to people who like think the way I do and like like legalistic jargon and you know what I mean? Like really hard, complicated, dense policy documents and stuff like that. But that's not everyone and it shouldn't have to be everyone, but that's the way it's constructed. And when we think about the narrative we're socialized into, why isn't it that this, these things are taught in schools, right? Because you know how much change could be done to the school board system if students started organizing and forming collectives around like, okay, this is something we care about. This is something we care about. This is something we care about. And, and then it could action in broader systemic change. That's kind of idealistic, but I think that's why I'm here to be idealistic. What you were saying about everyone's voice being heard directly relates to this co-creational project of creating reality. That's what it looks like. It's everyone having a voice. It's everyone being a part of it. And, and again, I'm thinking of this in the context of a high school for some reason, because that for me seems doable and I still kind of relate to that part of myself. So that's how that's really how I see it. And that also has to do with spaciousness because we create space for everyone. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't create space for everyone. You let everyone create, start to contribute to creating space for themselves, which is really exciting, right? Like it's not just a matter of, I think so many people would try and create space for someone else, but then, you know, they just don't understand the needs of that group. And sometimes that's like a valid, legitimate thing is like, if you don't exist in the space, it's really hard to make space for you without you coming in and saying, this is what I need. And I think about that a lot in the context of spaces that historically aren't designed for people. Sometimes it's really hard to know that community's needs within that specific space if they've never existed there. And I think that is valid to some extent. Yeah. So then I, instead of create space, hold space. Mm. Hold space for people to come to you and you to, to listen. I think that's more so because, yeah, you can't create the space. People create the space themselves. But you do, in that relationship, you do need someone who's going to accept and hold that space for you as well because if you're excluded no matter how much you want to create your own space you're going to be creating it in this fringe there is a need for everyone to be able to hold space for everyone else as well hundo p when you said uh, i think of high school for some reason i was going to say did you just use high school as a metaphor for society <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i guess i guess it does work in that context yeah it could 
I mean, there's just a ton of different people, kind of all different interests, you know, groups of people, individuals kind of existing in this thing. There is a narrative that's being taught and also some selectivity in terms of what narrative you want, you kind of want to exist in sometimes. In the context of education, maybe returning just back to fair a little. I think it really resonates with me as someone who was in regional programs since grade six. What does that mean, regional programs for people who don't know? A regional program is within the public education system. Like you apply to a school that has a specific interest or specific specialty in a specific discipline. Typically, it attracts a lot of really keen students who really want to be there around that specialty. So in grade six, I was in the science and technology program. And in grade nine, I was in the international baccalaureate program. But I, I think it really can be tenuous and difficult because the narrative starts to manifest in ways that like you you're not, you aren't even aware of. For me, with an IB, very little room to explore the art. And I think that's uh, that was difficult. And that's not to say I had to be a and like I could have gone somewhere else and gone to school there. But just the idea that like certain programs don't necessarily have the infrastructure to support certain things is kind of difficult. Totally. I'm feeling called to a resolution mm. of this podcast. Thank you so much to Omar for just being here, holding space, mm. for creating your own space, for listening, for helping me see, and for just being great. I really appreciate talking to you. You have a great voice for podcasting, for radio, for performance, for theater, for singing, whatever you want to do. I'm really excited for your future, for your present. And I hope to have you on again. Thanks for having me.